Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling great stories from the past. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we're coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We're coming with stories to tell and we hope you will listen. With us in the studio today are three co-hosts, Lieutenant Commander Chris Costello, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, and Roger Bailey, all three of us instructors in the same department. Roger will be narrating the amazing life and career of William Walker, the famous American filibuster of the mid-19th century who aspired to be ruler of Nicaragua and eventually all of Central America. Well, thanks for having me. For most Americans today, the term filibuster conjures up imagery of high drama in the legislature, determined politicians refusing to yield the floor in an effort to stop a measure from coming to a vote. Yet the term once had another meaning that most Americans have since forgotten. It came from the Spanish word filibustero, meaning freebooter or pirate, and it referred to outlaw adventurers who launched their own private, armed invasions of other countries. The most notorious filibuster of all was William Walker. Known as the Gray-Eyed Man of Destiny, Walker launched a series of four invasions and briefly took over the government of Nicaragua. His schemes ultimately unraveled, but Walker demonstrates how America's territorial expansionism influenced the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War and continues to shape the country's relations with its Latin American neighbors today. Born in Tennessee in 1824, Walker was a man who wore many hats. He spent time in Philadelphia earning a medical degree, then in New Orleans working as a lawyer and then a newspaper editor. In 1849, gold was discovered in California. Walker decided to follow the action and migrated to San Francisco. He took a job working as a newspaper editor, got embroiled in politics, and even fought a duel. California was a breeding ground for filibustering. Literally the Wild West, it was filled with young men looking for wealth, power, and adventure. They'd seen people come to the Pacific with nothing and strike gold. And because California was so remote, federal authority was extremely weak, and state government was just getting on its feet. That meant that many of these migrants felt they could play by their own rules. Many filibusters had been uprooted by the changes that, took, uh, that were taking place at the time. There were artisans and farmers displaced by urbanization and the rise of manufacturing, itinerant veterans from the Mexican-American War, fortune hunters who hadn't found luck in the gold fields, students trying to prove their manhood, and even southern planters. They were mostly white American men, though there were also many Europeans, especially immigrants from northern cities and expatriate radicals from Europe's 1848 revolutions. California was arguably the heartland of filibusterism, but eastern cities like New York and New Orleans were central hubs as well. Filibusters came from all over the country. The movement was further fueled by the idea of manifest destiny, which was at its apex in the 1850s. Many Americans considered territorial expansion to be their natural right or even duty. They'd watched Americans win a revolution in Texas, and then the U.S. fight a war against Mexico and bring California and other territories into the Union. Many folks believed something like that could happen again. So, Roger, an interesting point for, for Walker at the apex in his heyday is, is in the 1850s, but filibustering and freebooting have a, a longer history in the U.S. despite being prohibited by multiple neutrality acts, uh, specifically the first one in, in 1794. Uh, some Americans engaged in freebooting with French support into Spanish Louisiana in the 1790s, uh, trying to gain access to the Mississippi River. Uh, there's a handful of other ones that were pushing for access into Florida, and then later into Texas, and then into Central and South America, organizing themselves, like you had mentioned, out of California ports. 
what, what seemed to tie this all together was a, a desire for access to land and resources, a lot of times beyond restrictionist mercantile and colonial policies, um, and that's what was animating these earlier filibusters. Um, but these mid-century expeditions started to become much more intertwined with a desire to expand slave territory and, uh, and, and slavery itself. Um, Early American efforts to stop uh, some of these filibusters and, and, and freebooters um, were, were pretty simple uh, and easy to solve. Uh, sometimes the conspiracy uh, became publicized, uh, but in some cases they even took down a, a sitting uh, American senator. So most famously, uh, William Blunt, who was, uh, was serving as a senator from Tennessee, uh, was trying to undermine Spain and Louisiana and thought that uh, he could get some assistance from the British and use the Royal Navy to attack a number of critical port cities in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, uh, and his letter was leaked uh, publicly uh, all, all the way up to the president. And this is actually the reason that we end up with, with the Neutrality Acts in 1794. So uh, this seems to be almost as, uh, as American as apple pie. It is. It goes right back to the beginning. And uh, pe- people don't realize Aaron Burr, who's most famous, you know, as, as a vice president and as the man who uh, killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, like arguably was a filibuster himself that, you know, launched his own expedition down the Mississippi River with intentions, uh, presumably, of uh, taking land from Spain or, or New Orleans itself. There's a lot of ambiguity there. Yeah, this is also interesting, Roger. And with all these other examples in mind that, uh, that Chris just mentioned, my question is, what counts as filibustering as opposed to just political maneuvering? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because uh, filibustering by its very nature is, is shady and, and blurry. Um, you know, there's a broader type of, of adventurer and fortune hunter that these filibusters are coming out of that uh, tend to tell everyone sort of different versions of their plans as, as they're carrying out their operations, and then they tend to shift them whenever they see opportunities. So there were a lot of these folks who would say that they were just peaceful colonists or prospectors or something like that, and sometimes they may really have even had an intention, or at least a half intention, of doing that. But then if they didn't strike gold, if the government was sort of uh, causing them issues and seemed weak enough, they might decide that they saw an opportunity and then turn into a military expedition. So it's, it's, it's hard to gauge uh, where their intentions are. And, you know, that raises questions about some of these other kinds of uh, American uprisings in other countries like the uh, Bear Flag Revolt in California, which a lot of listeners uh, may not be familiar with, but I mean, the, the flag of the Bear Flag Revolt is, is the state flag of California today. Uh, it's an uprising that took place right at the beginning of the Mexican-American War um, by a bunch of American settlers in California, or the, the Texas Revolution for that matter, where you have peaceful settlers who then turn on the host government. Uh, you could even raise questions about a situation like Hawaii, where you have you know, not, you know, that you have native-born Hawaiians who launch a coup against the monarch, but they are native-born white American, of American descent Hawaiians. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to draw a line specifically. William Walker did not look like a filibuster. He was only about five foot five and 130 pounds with light hair, sandy complexion, and blue-gray eyes. He was generally soft-spoken and reserved, and tended to dress in poor-fitting, unusual, or mismatched clothes. Nevertheless, while living in California and watching other expeditions organized to invade Mexico, Walker caught the filibustering bug. In 1853, he visited the city of Guaymas in the Mexican state of Sonora to scope out the possibilities for an expedition. He observed that the Mexican government was weakened from the war with the U.S. and decades of almost nonstop upheaval. Most recently, 
General Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, who was president during both the Texas Revolution and the Mexican-American War, had returned to power once again. He was negotiating a land sale to the United States, which would cost him his presidency for the final time. So the central government was already unstable, and a peripheral territory like Baja California was especially vulnerable. Mexico City was unable to protect it from raiding by Native Americans or American filibusters. Failing to get Mexican approval for a plan to start his own settler colony, Walker returned to San Francisco. There, he openly recruited for an invasion of Baja California and the neighboring state of Sonora. Though he was violating a U.S. law known as the Neutrality Act, which barred Americans from waging war against foreign governments, Walker was becoming a bit of a local hero. In fact, the state government actually obstructed federal officials when they seized his ship. Walker wound up sneaking out of San Francisco a few days later on another ship with about 50 men. With the element of surprise, he and his small band managed to capture the capital of Baja, California, along with its governor. In triumph, Walker then declared himself the president of the Republic of Sonora and Lower California. Though receiving some positive press and reinforcements from California, things started unraveling for Walker almost as quickly as they'd come together. For one thing, he still hadn't set foot in the province of Sonora, which convinced many Californians the expedition was a farce. Poor planning was also an issue. The filibusters ran out of food almost immediately, and men started to desert. When the remaining filibusters were reduced to stealing cattle and other supplies from the people they were supposedly liberating, locals took up armed resistance against the Americans. Meanwhile, federal officials publicized these embarrassing incidents, and the U.S. military cut off Walker's supply lines. Ultimately, within a few months, Walker and his survivors had to flee back to California with the Mexican army hot on their heels. They turned themselves over to the U.S. Army for arrest, but once again, Walker's popularity got in the way of justice. A jury of Californians took only eight minutes to pronounce that he was not guilty of filibustering. Isn't it remarkable, Dr. Roger, that it took only eight minutes for a jury to reach a verdict? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, and it, it shows just the level of uh, popularity that expansionism had uh, in the American public at this time, especially in a place like California, which disproportionately was made up of people you know, who were, who were, the, the front, <laughs> who were at the forefront of American expansion in this period. My understanding is that the Navy had made efforts to stop filibustering before. Uh, what was the Navy up to here, and, and why was the Navy being used as this mechanism of enforcement, kind of at the, at the edge of, of their terrestrial control? Yeah, the, the Navy serves an interesting function in this period because, you know, their, their main job is to protect American mariners and, and travelers abroad, protect protect their rights as, as America perceived them. Um, but there is this sort of lack of power at the periphery that sort of forces the Navy to step in uh, and, and the Army as well to, to intervene when these situations happen, but they're not actually uh, properly equipped or empowered to do that. And so they're in this awkward situation where they will – you know, if they're able to catch filibusters on the high seas, they can they can arrest them and turn them over to local officials who you know may or may not actually care enough to prosecute them. Uh, but otherwise, they're uh, you know they have to act uh, as sort of deputies in a, in accordance with civilian officials on U.S. soil. They're not authorized to enforce the law on U.S. soil, and they certainly aren't allowed to enforce American law on foreign soil. Uh, and so they have to try to find uh, sort of creative ways. Uh, of, of intervening if the filibusters have actually landed or they risk getting in trouble. And that's, you know, ultimately happens to some naval officers who decide to intervene. Many of the filibusters had been Army veterans themselves in, in some capacity before. When the Army was pursuing Walker and then the Navy was later involved, were there supporters of these filibustering efforts uh, within the ranks of the military at the time? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that scholars debate uh, today, just how sympathetic uh, they were. Um, there, there was some sympathy. There were a handful of officers, at least in the Navy. I've, I've noticed a couple who, uh, you know, were considering joining filibustering expeditions. And uh, John Quitman, who is a, a prominent Army general, actually does, like, try to organize a filibustering expedition for a while, although he ultimately uh, winds up calling it off. Uh, so there is there is certainly sympathy that exists. But interestingly enough, my own research has made it clear to me that that's actually not the dominant attitude in the Navy. Even when there was a lot of sympathy, uh, they really dislike the illegal part of this expansionism because it disrupts U.S. relations. It endangers, you know, peaceable, law-abiding Americans who are traveling abroad and makes the Navy's life harder. And in the case of this expedition here, it actually uh, undermines or risks undermining uh, an American attempt to purchase land from Mexico. So there's you know, it's happening in opposition to sometimes legal American expansion. And so even expansionist military officers are usually uncomfortable with it. But, but you know, not always. Some of them are truly sympathetic. Walker was convinced that success had been within his grasp. The expedition whet his appetite and served as a dress rehearsal for future operations. Now he started to look at Nicaragua, a country which was especially vital at the time. There was no transcontinental railroad in the United States, no Panama Canal, and oceanographic telegraph cables were just coming into use for the first time. If you wanted to get goods, people, or information between the Atlantic and the Pacific, the fastest way was by crossing Central America overland, usually through Nicaragua. It was the link between east and west coasts of the United States. In 1854, civil war broke out in Nicaragua. The conservative party, backed by the Catholic Church and landed elites, tried to pass a new constitution increasing the property requirements to vote and hold office and ending protection for communal lands that the rural poor relied on. These changes would consolidate wealth and political power in the hands of the white elite. This triggered an uprising by the opposition liberal party who favored economic modernization and greater democracy. Many held an idealistic view of the United States and believed that American immigration would aid these goals bringing in investment, benefiting local business by encouraging American travelers to pass through the country, shielding the country from British imperial ambitions, and perhaps even shoring up democracy. To support their goal, liberal leaders reached out to Walker and concocted a scheme to get around the Neutrality Act and bring in more recruits. The liberal claimant to the presidency, Francisco Castellan, gave Walker a large land grant based on the promise that he would bring a party of armed men as settlers. After arriving, though, as residents now of Nicaragua, these so-called settlers could legally join the military. Walker agreed, and in May 1855, he and 60 recruits from San Francisco managed to evade federal authorities again and sailed to Nicaragua. There, he soon developed a terrible relationship with the senior liberal general and refused to join his army. Instead, he recruited hundreds of native and foreign fighters into his own, largely independent force called the American Phalanx. With every success the phalanx had on the battlefield, more Nicaraguans joined his force and more American filibusters traveled to Nicaragua to sign up in the hope of finding adventure or winning land. Within a few months, the phalanx captured the conservative capital of Granada and ended the rebellion. And as the conscripts and the factional armies were demobilized, Walker's phalanx, which answered only to him, essentially became the sole Nicaraguan military force, and that made the president essentially his puppet. Many Nicaraguans continued to support Walker when they saw that he followed up on his military successes with liberal policies like discouraging conscription of soldiers and, at least at first, restraining filibuster atrocities. 
He also succeeded where the conservative government had failed to right the wrongs done by the American Accessory Transit Company, a company owned by American railroad baron Cornelius Vanderbilt. The conservative government had given Vanderbilt a very profitable monopoly to handle transportation on the route across the isthmus, but Vanderbilt had unexpectedly moved the transit route away from the original corridor through liberal Nicaraguan population centers. Instead, Vanderbilt centered the transit route on an underpopulated area where the transit could be made slightly faster, but without travelers spending any money in the local economy. Even more egregiously, the company violated their charter by refusing to pay the Nicaraguan government their share of the profits. Walker repudiated the charter, seized the company's property, and renegotiated a deal with Vanderbilt's competitors. To some Nicaraguans, filibusters seemed like a way to get the benefits of European settler colonialism without subjugation. So there was a moment of promise where Walker seems to have basically succeeded in his goals. Many Nicaraguans welcomed him with open arms, and the new liberal government received diplomatic recognition from the United States. But Walker seems to have had bolder ambitions of reuniting Central America into a single republic dominated primarily by Americans like himself. Another alternative was to hand over the whole region to the United States. Alarming rumors of such ambitions spread to neighboring countries. The president of Costa Rica declared war and formed a coalition with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Nicaraguan conservatives and even some liberals started turning on Walker as well. Even the liberal president fled and announced support for the coalition. Undaunted, Walker held rigged presidential elections and won. By assuming the presidency of Nicaragua, Walker succeeded where all other filibusters of the 1850s had failed. Yet despite his achievements, Walker was all along sowing the seeds of his own collapse. His men were poorly disciplined, so looting and other crimes were relatively common. Walker was also very quick to execute dissidents, which, it turns out, does not help unify a nation. He also made English an official language, encouraged further immigration from the U.S., and eventually reinstituted slavery, which had been abolished 20 years before. What a story. I mean, Walker just seems to be perched on a precipice at this point. He, things could go either way for him, collapse, death, or success and dictatorship, however you want to define it. But I guess my question before we go any further, and I'm, I can't wait to hear the rest of the story, is why was Walker so popular? What, what compelled Americans as private citizens to support him so avidly? So many Southerners supported this transnational effort of which filibustering plays a role uh, to find new areas of the globe in which slavery could be utilized and could remain economically productive uh, were it politically outlawed, most notably in the United States. Um, and in fact, the Navy actually plays a, an ancillary part in this too. Uh, there was a naval officer named William Herndon who went on an expedition in 1851, and it lasts until 1853. And he starts in western South America, in Peru, and he manages to cross over into, uh, into western Brazil, and he's exploring the Amazon basin, and ostensibly it is like many of the other uh, many of the other navies uh, exploring expeditions of the era in which he's, uh, you know, a, a part-time botanist and a zoologist and an astronomer. Uh, but the undercurrent of his expedition uh, was, was to determine whether or not it might be feasible for uh, Southerners to, to move into this Amazon basin along with uh, enslaved persons so that it could become economically productive uh, were slavery abolished in the United States. And so 
Herndon returns to the United States, uh, and he produces this long report to the Secretary of the Navy, kind of categorizing what, what he had found. Uh, but but his his kind of secondary purpose to that was, um, as as Carp and, and Johnson have identified, of, of determining like is it is it feasible to move slavery. Uh, elsewhere in the world and then have laws and, and morality, of course, chasing it uh, to, to end that practice. Yeah, that, that's a great point. There is this large pro-slavery expansion uh, movement here. And, and filibustering, uh, Matthew Carp actually talks about how filibustering sort of gets a lot of attention as part of this. But in reality, it's it's not really that meaningful a contributor in, in, compared to the way that like the Navy and some of these other organizations are able to do things, um, are able to direct policy a little bit more, capture capture the public mind a little bit more. Um, Walker, actually earlier in his life, had been uh, pretty moderate on the slavery question, arguably even slightly anti-slavery. Uh, and, and a lot of scholars think that he actually tries to uh, hop on the bandwagon of this movement and that he legalizes slavery, uh, both actually in, in Mexico and in Nicaragua later, uh, as a way of, of capitalizing on that energy you know, of, of a public in, in the South that wanted to see expansion abroad when it couldn't have it anymore in the country because of limits placed on it by things like the, the Missouri Compromise. I just think it's also fascinating because when you think about the 19th century, you think mostly of British adventurers who are going off to places like Africa and Asia and exploring the wilderness in the, in the service of empire and making uh, remarkable careers out of this kind of discovery. And then we have the story of Herndon going off to the Amazonia, to Brazil, seemingly to investigate the prospects of slavery in this very remote location. And I just have to ask the question here in Annapolis, we have the Herndon Monument, a very famous monument. Is there any connection between the two? There is. So Herndon, uh, after after serving a number of years uh, in the Navy, after his exploring expedition down to, to the Amazon, uh, was in command of a, a mail steamer, so a, a, a government-chartered mail steamer, um, and he was captaining it, and it was going from Cuba uh, back to the east coast of the United States. And um, in 1857, off the coast of the Carolinas, uh, it ran into a storm. The ship started flooding. The flooding put the fire out in the boilers, and you lose propulsion. It's a bad day for the ship. And it, it starts to sink. And so Hernan's able to, to send out a, a distress signal, and he's able to start getting women and children off of the vessel. Um, he allegedly gives his watch to, uh, to another woman to give back to his wife who remains back in the United States. Um, and he makes the decision to, to go down with the ship. So kind of embodying these, uh, these ideals that we like to see, but he dies in 1857 and, uh, that, that's kind of the, the height of his popularity there. Um, you know, were he to be alive, uh, throughout the, uh, the civil war, he may very likely have like his brother-in-law, uh, Matthew Fontaine Maury uh, resigned his commission in the U.S. Navy and joined the Confederate Navy, but but he dies. And as a result of the timing of his death, um, he's he's lionized here at the Naval Academy. Uh, three years later, they, they build a very famous monument to him. And it's a rather simple obelisk. And the midshipmen here attempt every year after their first year to, to climb up it after it's been greased. It requires a, a degree of teamwork. It's, it's, not a, it's not a short monument by any means. And it's become something of a Naval Academy tradition. And so the Academy has it uh, because they want to exemplify those, uh, those ideals uh, of, of uh, 
helping the less fortunate um, to uh, to survive, um, you know, perhaps these notions of, uh, of of chivalry. And so that's probably a nice way to say that you know people are are, are very complicated. Um, and and despite Herndon's efforts of uh, of trying to uh, expand uh, potentially this uh, this awful human practice of the time of, of enslavement, gives his life uh, in a in a noble manner. That's just fascinating. It's important to note too that this uh, this affiliation between filibusters and this larger pro-slavery expansion project uh, actually causes problems and undermines a lot of federal projects uh, like like Herndon's exploration and, and Matthew Fontaine Maury's uh, you know guidance of, of American exploring expeditions in Latin America because a lot of countries uh, you know see that filibusters are are presenting their sel- themselves one way as, as trying to carry out a certain kind of mission, and then in reality, uh, it turns into a land grab. Uh, and, and so they see even peaceful attempts to, like, open up the country as being potential filibustering expeditions, and so they start, start shutting down access for Americans. Walker's decline was relatively quick. With help from more and more defecting Nicaraguans, the coalition made good headway against the filibusters. The Allies also received help from Cornelius Vanderbilt. As one of America's most powerful shipping magnates, Vanderbilt was not a good enemy to have. Vanderbilt did everything he could to cut off supplies, financing, and reinforcements from reaching Walker. He also shipped the coalition money and arms and sent agents to advise their army and to steal back his ships. Ultimately, Walker and the last of his forces were trapped in the town of Rivas in western Nicaragua until the U.S. Navy intervened in May of 1857. Commander Charles Henry Davis of USS St. Mary considered Walker a pirate, yet felt compelled, in his words, quote, to save my countrymen from certain death. So he negotiated an agreement with the coalition that allowed the filibusters to surrender to him and be evacuated. This avoided costly fighting, but many Central Americans saw this as the U.S. government stepping in to protect their citizens guilty of all kinds of crimes and misdeeds. That impression grew after Walker was greeted as a hero in New York City and then escaped conviction because of a hung jury. Capitalizing on his popularity, that November, Walker organized a second invasion force of 300 men, which somehow slipped by the USS Saratoga guarding the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua. Walker was good at taking advantage of a recurring problem in federal anti-filibustering efforts. Federal officials didn't know how far their authority allowed them to go. Because Walker had proper customs clearance and was now on foreign soil, the commander of the Saratoga felt he couldn't intervene. Instead, Saratoga played a psychological game by conducting live-fire exercises just a few feet outside of the filibuster camp and sending Walker threatening messages. It wasn't until the Commodore of the United States Home Squadron Hiram Paulding arrived a few days later that the Navy surrounded Walker with 300 sailors and Marines armed with artillery. The landing party forced the filibusters to surrender before they'd even had a chance to launch another attempt to seize power in Nicaragua. Nicaraguans loved this, but the American public was bitterly divided. Walker escaped with another hung jury, and the administration in Washington tried to deflect blame from both sides of the political aisle onto the naval officers on the scene. The government suspended the commander of the Saratoga for not doing enough and also censured Commodore Paulding for exceeding his authority. These contradictory measures show how the U.S. government played a delicate game, trying to maintain a respectable diplomatic reputation on one side while appeasing expansionists and Southerners on the other. Filibusters like Walker had become a lightning rod for controversy about the relationship between federal power, slavery, and regional interests. 
Although many Americans were beginning to lose faith in Walker after three consecutive failures, he still wrote a book about his Nicaraguan adventurers and went on a speaking tour. And to drum up more support with Central America, he converted to Catholicism. Then in 1860, he led yet another expedition, this time to Honduras, where he was probably hoping to cause a liberal takeover of the government. From there, he could launch an invasion into neighboring Nicaragua. Ultimately, though, a large Honduran force cornered him, and though Walker tried to escape by surrendering, this time to the Royal Navy, the British were not as sympathetic. They turned him over to the Hondurans, who promptly tried him for piracy, robbery, and filibustering, and executed him by firing squad. When he died, William Walker was one of the most famous men in the world. Yet within his own native country, regional tensions were reaching a breaking point and throwing open the question of whether the Union could even survive. It no longer seemed like Walker's misadventures were likely to help solve the slavery dilemma or strengthen Americans' influence in the world. After the outbreak of the American Civil War, his failed schemes for establishing slave republics in Latin America seemed irrelevant. Again, what a story, Dr. Roger. I just uh, am amazed by this man's tenacity. In fact, I just have to ask the question, what would have happened if he had not gone on to Honduras this last time? Here he had written a book, was a fixture on the, le on the lecture circuit. He could have perhaps enjoyed a comfortable retirement living off the proceeds from his notoriety, a celebrity. He, was, he, could, he could have cashed in on that potentially. But instead he takes this last trip to Honduras and meets his final end. So I guess my question is, why did the British turn him over uh, when the Americans did not? W were there motivations there that we ought to mention? Or Yeah, it's, it's pretty complicated, uh, actually, w what was at stake diplomatically in the region. Uh, there's, there's some nuances of treaty law where the British were potentially going to have to give up certain colonies and Walker's able to, to get an invite potentially to intervene on behalf of, of one of the British colonies. But, but overall, um, the British saw Walker as interfering with this very volatile and very important region. I mean, the, the Central America and the, the transits um, are, are one of the most important shipping and communication lines in the world. Um, and Walker was destabilizing that. They had just reached, in 1850, um, a treaty Br Britain had with the United States uh, to, to stabilize the region and stop attempts to like expand imperial influence in that area. And here Walker was sort of inserting himself there, uh, trying to take away land that had been uh, you know, either British or, or at least in neighboring Honduras, um, had a large British commercial interest in them. Uh, and so Britain, yeah, was, was not really having any of this. And so the commander, uh, you know, when he captured Walker, uh, was happy to turn him over. And I, I don't know if it made his decision any easier, but uh, actually when Walker first agreed to surrender to the British commander, uh, he like made these arrangements as an as a excuse so that he could slip out <laughs> in the middle of the night and escape surrender. Uh, and then the British had to hunt him down again and capture him, and at, at that point, they were just they were just done. <laughs> They'd lost lost patience for him. How is Walker remembered today in Latin America because of his activities back then? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Walker had a much more profound legacy in Latin America, where he's still seen as like the quintessential American imperialist. Uh, in Nicaragua, actually, the victory over the filibusters became a source of national pride and is commemorated with a national holiday today. 
Um, Fear of filibustering uh, actually also undermined more official American expansionist goals, including uh, those of, of uh, Herndon and Matthew Fontaine Maury, who are trying to encourage American settlement in places like Brazil and Central America. Um, but it becomes hard for these governments to distinguish between who is a filibuster and who is not. Um, and, and there's a distrust of the American government, especially because there's this perception of sympathy on the part of filibusters and this lack of enforcement of, of uh, the law and justice. Walker's adventurism helped to unify Central Americans in opposition to American imperialism, including the sorts of military interventions that became more common in the early 20th century. So even though Walker and the other filibusters failed, and Americans mostly forgot about them, the expeditions are an influential chapter uh, in U.S. relations with its Latin American neighbors. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.